This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's poem. There was such speed in her little body, and such lightness in her footfall. It is no wonder her brown study astonishes us all. Her wars were brooded in our high window. We looked among orchard trees and beyond, when she took arms against her shadow, or harried unto the pond. The lazy geese, like a snow cloud, dripping their snow on the green grass, tricking and stopping, sleepy and proud, who cried in goose, alas. For the tireless heart within the little lady, with rod that made them rise, from their noon apple dreams and scuttle, goose fashion under the skies. But now go the bells, and we are ready. In one house we are sternly stopped, to say we are vexed at her brown study, lying so primly propped. And that poem was written by John Crow Ransom. John Crow Ransom was born April 30th, 1888, in Pulaski, Tennessee. He died July 3rd, 1974, in Gambier, Ohio. He became a professor at Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, following time that he spent in World War I as an artillery officer in France. And Ransom's most famous contribution is to is as an advocate for slow living, for a resistance to fast-paced life. And if you look at the time of, of history that he was alive between 1888 and 1974, he's one of those people that falls into that interesting category that I've mentioned before. People who he was born after the Civil War, the American Civil War, and he lived through the turn of a century, um, and then he saw everything from the Titanic sinking to World War I, World War II, Korea, and then towards the latter part of his life, he saw the conflict in Vietnam. And this is a very interesting period of life, and I can only imagine what life would have been like for someone like him to see such advances happen over over his years. And one of the things that he saw, especially leading into the first couple decades of the 20th century, was this increasing pace of life, this rapidity. And being a, a, a Southern man himself, born in Tennessee, teaching at Vanderbilt University, he was an advocate for more of a Southern agrarian society something based around farming, based on being close to and connected to both land and nature, and an import- and the importance of a work-life balance. Because this was a time in American history where the Industrial Revolution was, was in full swing. Uh, we were moving into multiple world wars. There were massive advances in technology and business life, and it resulted in people consistently moving more and more quickly through their day-to-day. And he argued that this was a bad thing and that we should resist this. And so that's what he built a lot of his theses upon, and also when it came to literary criticism, um, he looked at it more pragmatically than most at the turn of the century. He was looking for more matter-of-fact observation of literature, taking things in what's called close reading, a close reading of text, and focusing on what is actually written in the text and no more. No context, no non-textual biases that, that could be applied to the actual poetry or prose as they were written. And he was opposed to, t- to sentimentality. 
um, the, the flowery language, the softness. He wanted a more matter-of-fact approach taken to, to literature. And this poem, which is easily Ransom's most famous, was published in Chills and Fever, a book that he published in 1924. And again, this is easily his most popular and most well-known poem. Many of you have probably seen this poem before. I think I came across this poem for the very first time when I was in high school, uh, possibly late middle school. And of course, it depicts the life and death of a young girl in a very pragmatic way. And we'll talk about that here shortly. But to remind those of you that may not have listened to previous explications that we've done, when we do an explication, uh, I tend to use the framework provided by the University of North Carolina's Chapel Hill Writing Center. Uh, It was something that I came upon when I was learning and interested in learning about performing explications, which are a detailed analysis. It's just another word for a detailed analysis of poetry. And UNC Chapel Hill's Writing Center has a really good write-up. And as we've talked about before, there are six questions that the Writing Center encourages us to explore as we dissect a poem. The first is, what is being dramatized? The second, who is speaking? The third, what happens in the poem? Four, when does the poem take place? Five, where is the speaker? And sixth and final is, why does the speaker choose this moment to speak? And with these six questions, you can dissect nearly any poem. And as I found with most, it requires multiple readings. And as I've said in the past as well, good poems, in my opinion, are interesting at first pass. Very easy to pull something out of, very easy to connect to something at first pass. But they reveal more and more as you as you dive into them, as you peel back the layers, as it were, or you go through the stanzas and lines. You see that there's more to the poem than just what was there at first pass. And this is no exception. So keeping those things in mind, what's being dramatized, who's speaking, what happens, when is the poem, where is the speaker, and why is the speaker choosing now to speak, uh, let's take a look at this poem. I'm going to read it one more time and think about those questions in your mind as I go through this. And maybe something will jump out at you because this will now be your second time potentially hearing this poem. So here's the poem one more time. There was such speed in her little body and such lightness in her footfall. It is no wonder her brown study astonishes us all. Her wars were brooded in our high window. We looked among orchard trees and beyond, where she took arms against her shadow, or harried unto the pond. The lazy geese, like a snow cloud dripping their snow on the green grass, tricking and stopping, sleepy and proud, who cried in goose, alas. For the tireless heart within the little lady, with rod that made them rise, from their noon apple dreams and scuttle, goose fashion under the skies. But now go the bells, and we are ready. In one house we are sternly stopped, to say we are vexed at her brown study, lying so primly propped. And again, this poem depicts the life and death of a a young girl. It's fairly apparent. And there are five stanzas, 20 lines. And the first stanza is very indicative of what's to come. The word was. There was such speed in her little body. Obviously, there's some foreboding there. There is some foreshadowing of this is a this is written in the past tense. There used to be speed in her little body. And you can imagine a small child. We've all seen small children playing. If you've ever walked past a park, maybe you have children of your own, you know what the author is referring to here. Children run with astonishing speed. They have tons of energy. We always say that that 
you know, all that energy and youthfulness is wasted on the youth. What I wouldn't give to have that kind of energy myself. I don't know how they do it and on and on and on. But clearly, this girl was no exception to that, except that it's in the past tense. So we know that this girl is no longer, there is no longer speed in her little body. There is no longer lightness in her footfall, as the author mentions. And the term brown study that's in the first stanza really kind of threw me for a loop. I'd never heard that term before, brown study. So I did a little bit of digging, and as I usually do, I avoided looking at other explications because I feel like that's a little bit of cheating. I think part of the fun of this exercise is to do this live for the first time, more or less, with a couple of notes. And Brown's study was one of those things that jumped out at me, and I couldn't tease out what exactly it meant. And apparently this is a term that is no longer used in the common vernacular, because a study to me is a room, right? It might be a small library you hear people say in some of the some of the old movies and shows that you watch, let us retire to the study, right? And what they're talking about is a, is a room. Usually bookshelves line the walls. There might be a desk, maybe a fireplace, comfortable chairs, that kind of thing, where conversation happens, thinking, reading, etc. Not in this case. In this, it's an allusion to someone so engrossed in study or reading as to be still, almost like death, right? So the color brown is is probably an allusion to the fact that it's it's there's there's a darkness or an earthiness or a kind of a there's nothing bright to it. So the brown is a is a color that emphasizes the word study, but when he says it is no wonder her brown study astonishes us all. You can imagine this is so who is the speaker in this case? We don't know. It could be a father, it could be a close friend, it could be a neighbor who's used to having seen this this young girl running around the yard and She's in this study pose right now because she's passed. Um, she's in this study pose where she's still, so still as to be almost dead or asleep, as it were. And the interesting implication of that is that the word study in this case implies a certain finality to it, right? It's not forever. It's finite. It means that she, at any moment, we expect her to just snap out of it, to wake up, to put down her book and to return to her her childhood fancies. But we know that's not the case. But it's an interesting use of a phrase or a term to illustrate the, to further illustrate or emphasize the shock that comes as any of us would be shocked by the death of a young child. And the middle three stanzas of the poem, the next three stanzas are 12 lines of the poem, all describe the child. And they should all sound familiar to us. We were probably very similar to this ourselves. But it talks about her taking arms against her shadow. So there's some interesting pieces here. She took arms against her shadow or ran down to the pond. She chased the geese around with sticks. And that's interesting as well, right? Because that, to me, that makes it sound like she maybe, maybe she was an only child or maybe she lived on a, a block or a neighborhood or in an area where there weren't a lot of other children. So she entertained herself and she did so by jousting against her own shadow and taking a stick and running down and and making the geese take off and fly away. And you can, you can picture this. You can imagine being in a high window, as the author mentions, while this child was at war with her, her own shadow. And you can see a child running through a yard on a day. You, you get up, you happen to look out the window, and there's a small child scampering across your yard, carrying a stick, and you see a, a bunch of geese sitting on the grass down by the pond, and the next thing you know, they're in flight. And why are they in flight? Because the girl ran after them with a stick with her tireless heart, as he says. And that's a, that's a neat image, right? The, the author of the poem here, Ransom, does an incredibly good job of painting a picture in a very few lines 
that is almost universally recognizable to the reader. I can't imagine anyone who could read this and not picture almost exactly what the author was picturing at the time. And that is literary skill. I mean, that is professional writing, if there ever was any. The ability to convey in just 12 short lines exactly what we would all imagine a small child with a pond, with a bunch of geese, and a stick to be doing. You can almost imagine probably doing it yourself as a child. And of course, she's young. She's probably, she's probably, I don't know, five years old, eight years old. I mean, way, way too young to now be dead. Right? And that's the most shocking part of this, is he describes in great detail, he spends three-fifths of this poem describing the excitability and, and wonder of this child and imagination and all of these things, but we know that she's dead. And one thing that I like that I think is worth pointing out here is the, the line, geese like snow. And that makes me picture them nested down, imagine, just as you would expect. The lazy geese like snow cloud dripping their snow on the green grass. That's a, that's a neat way to describe a goose. He could have just said a goose lying on the ground, or geese lying on the ground, nesting, sleeping, eating, whatever it is that they're doing. And it sets kind of a romantic, almost reminiscent image. And, and of course, it's past tense, and that's, that's sad. With that romantic image, it serves to further create this dichotomy of images in our minds where, on the one hand, you have this, you have this, this jubilant, excitable young child running around doing all these things, and then he refers to her brown study. You know, brown study, this, this, this lifeless, drab-colored death that we're now confronted with. And coming into the last stanza, that's exactly what we see. And it makes me, the last stanza, but now go the bells and we are ready. In one house, we are sternly stopped. That, those two lines make me think of exactly what you would expect, right? Imagine you're, there, there's a large living room. Maybe there's, the sun has come out and there's, you know, the sun's peeking in through the windows and it's a family. They're nestled around. Somebody has their arm around somebody else. Somebody else has a tissue because they're crying. Everybody is dressed well. And then the bells start ringing. And... Those bells are probably indicative of a church service. They're probably indicative of the beginning of a funeral procession or something of that sort. Maybe the body is lying in repose at the house, you know, and he brings up the term again, a brown study, to say we are vexed at her brown study, lying so primly propped. It's mechanical. It's pragmatic. It's matter-of-fact. This is a child who once was full of life and vim and vigor and imagination and has now died. And the family, upon hearing these bells, is ready to begin arguably the most difficult part, whether that is to see the body, say goodbye to the body one last time, to carry the little girl down to the cemetery, to head to the church, to begin the ceremonial services. Whatever it happens to be, you can picture it. And again, it's done in very few lines. And one piece that I found interesting is I read this poem two different ways, two of the times that I read it. And the only thing that changed in my mind as I read these two times was the way I looked at the word bells. Because remember, the name of the poem is Bells for John Whiteside's Daughter. So I don't think the author is John Whiteside. I think we're talking about somebody who's looking at these events from the outside. Again, could be an uncle, could be a friend, could be a neighbor, could be a townsperson, could be the minister at the church, whatever it, whatever it happens to be. And bells can mean two things, right? Bells can mean... A, a, a feeling of mourning, right? When you hear, you know, for whom the bell tolls and for some of the, the sad, dreary, you can picture the quiet town with nothing but birds chirping and the sun in the sky and then the, the low ring of a bell. 
And in this case, it might symbolize sadness. It might symbolize the beginning of a funeral procession or something of that sort. But bells can also be a positive thing, right? Bells can also be a way to celebrate. Bells are also rung after weddings and at christenings and various other things in celebration. Bells are rung as part of retirement ceremonies for for Navy personnel and, and other things like that. So bells can be a positive or a negative thing. So the title of the poem alone elicits some thought of, are these mournful bells or are these celebratory bells? Perhaps the family is sad, but the bells ringing remind them of her, and it's a positive thing. But either way, we're left to think about that. And of course, in thinking about this, you can't help but think about the finality of life, right? The finiteness of the world around us and how one day it ends for all of us. And it makes you think and it makes you chew on those things. And of course, you're mournful at the fact of this fictionalized girl. Perhaps she's fictional. Perhaps she's not. We have no proof that this was a real person in Ransom of the Life, but it could have been. But it makes you take a picture of life as a whole. And it reminds me of a line from a song that many of you have probably heard. And it's a song by Avicii, and it's a song called The Nights. And the line in the song that stands out to me is, One day you'll leave this world behind, so live a life you will remember. And of course this is usually shown with exciting things like people skydiving and snowboarding down mountains and um, water skiing and doing all these exciting things. And it's meant to be a challenge to us. And of course, this small child who never got to do those things, but did get to chase geese around with a stick and live a life that she hopefully will remember. And of course, here, the author is remembering on her behalf is a positive note. So going back to the questions that the UNC Chapel Hill Writing Center encourages us to consider, we know what happens in the poem. We don't know who the speaker is. Why is the speaker speaking now? I think it's safe to say that that's a result of the the funeral. This is a mournful thing. This is a reminiscence of a childhood lost, a life lost in childhood. We don't know how she died. We don't know why she died. But I think the speaker is also potentially speaking to us to remind us to take that time in life and to cherish what we do have, to live a life that we will remember. And I love this poem, and I hope that you enjoyed it as well, and I hope that you take something from it and you reminisce, and that you enjoy the next time you see a small child playing in a park, chasing geese, or playing with a pet, or playing with another child. And remember their life. And of course, take the time to remember your own, because, as the song says, one day you'll leave this world behind. So let's go forth and all live a life that we'll remember. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks as always for listening.